But Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and it says, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. And I really want you to grab hold of this next bit. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Put your hand up here this morning if you are a sufferer of asthma. Anybody? Yeah, this is the one opportunity that you get to go, yes, wheezing and coughing, <laughs> Ventolin. Yeah, I have had asthma my whole life. And it's just something that I have had to learn to deal with. Ever since I was a little baby, I was, I was hospitalized. I was in and out of hospital all through my childhood years. Um, it's something that every time I think about doing physical activity that I have to be aware of. And it was particularly challenging for me in my early teenage years when I started going to high school. Um, I was particularly... Um, I grew up in a, in a Russian... I was going to a Russian high school and I was the only Australian in my class. And there was a particular weight on me from some of my sport teachers to um, not do so well. And I wanted to prove them wrong. They were like, no, this Australian can't beat all you Russian kids. You better show him up. And it was annoying to him because I was like half a foot taller than every single person in the school, including the sports teacher. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, and I, I, I took that as a challenge and I wanted to run faster and, and, and jump higher. And for a lot of the time I did, but when it, there was one particular thing that like Russian sports classes, like military training, they make you run kilometers and, and do all sorts of crazy stuff, climb ropes. And like, he would always try and keep me out of things and it was because we had to tell the school that I had asthma. But I took it as a challenge. I'm like, no, I'm going to go run. So I'd wait until the teacher turned his back and then I'd take off and go run a kilometre with everybody else just because I was like, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to prove that I can do it. And the other thing that I used to love to do, I, I used to, living in Russia, the mountains are amazing and snow-covered mountains all year round. And I used to love and just go climb a mountain go out with my friends and we'd spend a whole day, six, seven-hour hike up a mountain. And um, we're talking about out-of-tree-line altitudes like, and amazing views. But when you get up to the top of a mountain, something that is particularly bad for asthmatics is that the air is a little bit thinner and makes it hard to breathe. So it was something, even climbing mountains and doing the things that hiking and, and running and all those things that I used to love to do was a challenge. And you see, if I lived in response to my asthma then I never would have climbed mountains, I never would have won races, I never would have done the things that I love to do because I'd be constantly thinking, oh man, if I go do that, I'm going to start wheezing and coughing. And you know, the funny thing is I found the more you respond to your asthma, the worse it actually gets. 
Like if, if I start wheezing and I start thinking about it, then I start coughing and then I start getting a scratchy throat and then I start struggling for breath and then I start, it gets worse and I get dizzy and I can't think straight and all I'm trying to do is just like knowing that wherever I go, I have a Ventolin with me that's in my bag. I have a Ventolin in my bag all the time and a Ventolin in my car just in case because you never know. Like asthma just, I can be sitting at my desk and I have an asthma attack. I don't know why, like someone's drilled a hole or whatever, like there's dust. But, you know, if I just stopped for a second and went, oh, I've just got to get my Ventolin out and take it, then I'm good. But for some reason, I, you, if you respond to the asthma and you start to panic and you start to stress and you start going through your bag like a madman, your asthma is getting worse and worse and worse until you can't think straight. You know, the title of my message this morning is Respo- Living in Response to Jesus. See, when I have my asthma, and if I live in response to my asthma, I don't get the victories. I don't get the wins. I don't get the blessing of life. But when I live in response to reaching my goals, to reaching what I've called to do, that, that that's when I'm going to achieve those things. I'm not going to let the, the sickness in me hold me back from doing the things that I love. Does anyone remember and I'm probably going to get some flack for this, those cheesy bracelets that used to say WWJD. Does anyone remember those? What, and the, that used to stand for what would Jesus do? And I don't know, it must have been just sort of my error, but like when I was coming into youth ministry, these things were massive. It was like the, just the early 2000s and every single youth group was handing them out in droves. And I remember I had a few youth pastors and anytime I needed advice, I would get, well, what would Jesus do? Like, and I felt like that's such a cop-out answer. Like, I need some real help and you're just going, what would Jesus do? Like, how am I, a young 12-year-old broken person, supposed to know what a sinless human God who lived 2,000 years ago would do? Like, you know, I, and just like, it's one of those questions, like, that is an unattainable goal. Like, what would Jesus do in my situation? I, I'm not even, I don't know that I'm even capable of, of thinking, like, what would Jesus do in that situation? And, you know, I have, as I've gotten older and I've started to comprehend that question, I've started to appreciate it a bit more. But I've also come to another question that I think is just as vitally important. And is, it's not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus have me do? See, because it's all about perspective. Like, Jesus knows my failures. He knows my weaknesses, but he also knows my strengths. He knows what I'm good at. He knows the plan and purpose for my life. So if I come to a place where I would go, I can't think about what Jesus would do, but what would Jesus have me do? What is God calling me? Why has he placed me in this situation? Why has he, you know, why is he putting me through the struggles of life that I'm going through? Why am I in this place that God has put me in? Yeah. And, you know, has anyone, does anyone remember in Forrest Gump? Amazing movie. I love Forrest Gump. But there's a scene in Forrest Gump where um, Forrest has inadvertently and stupidly ended up in the military by no <laughs> desire of himself. And he's in basic training, and his drill sergeant has asked them to blindfold it, take a rifle apart and put it back together. And Forrest Gump does it incredibly fast. And the drill sergeant comes back and he goes, Gump, 
Why did you put that rifle so f- together so fast? And I'm taking out all the explicit words just so you know. <laughs> I'm not going to quote it. But <laughs> um, and Gump looks up at him and he goes, because you told me to, drill sergeant. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the drill sergeant goes, Gump, you are a genius. You're going to be a general someday. Like, it's a, this amazing scene, but I feel like sometimes we need to be like that with God. Like, it's not about what I want to do. It's not about my situation. It's not about where I am. It's just doing what God has placed on me to do and living in response to what God has asked me to do. Like, God says, jump, and you say, how high? Like, because in the, in the scheme of things, God knows you so much better. He knows you so much better and he's got an amazing plan. And it's like when we do it in our own way, when we do it in the way according to our culture, in according to our sinly nature that we all struggle with, it's going to turn into a mess. But when we do it God's way and through his perspective and live in response to that, God's going to do something amazing out of that. You know, I am a person that um, I need to put my keys in the same place. And if I don't, I have a very irrational, insane response to losing my keys. I don't know why, it just stresses me out to, to my core. And I don't know why I do it. Like, it's just, I, if I don't put my keys in exactly the same spot, I cannot remember where they are. I will not be able to get up the next morning and go, where are my keys? Where did I leave them last night? It's impossible for me. I remember... Um, a few weeks ago, just me and Ash got married and we moved in together. And the first day I moved into my house, I picked a spot. I picked a spot and I'm like, this is the key spot. And it's right near the front door. And I walk in and I, I was like, that's the spot. Right near the front door. You can't miss it. Right? And that was the place where my keys were going to go. And it worked really well for about a week. Until one night I came home, it was the first week after Christmas that I was going back to work, I was running late, I was like, what is Jono going to say, I'm going to be late for work, it's like the first week back at work, and, um, and I could not find my keys, they were not in the spot, and out comes the irrational, insane version of Luke that trashed our whole house. Our bedroom, every drawer, every, every cupboard was ripped open. I'm digging through everything. I go downstairs and Ashley has a huge pile of freshly clean folded laundry. What does insane Luke do? <laughs> Throws it everywhere across the lounge room. I'm not talking about like I moved it. It's like clothes were hanging off the lighting fixtures, clothes were over the TV, like everywhere. And I, like, kitchen, laundry, the whole house, I could not find my keys until I stopped. I, I, I stopped and I sat down. I had, like, 10 minutes before I get to work. I'm still, like, sort of freaking out, but I'm stopped. And I'm, and I'm like, did I wear these pants yesterday? Oh, no. I'm like, I don't think I wore these pants yesterday. Went back upstairs, a pair of pants that I had moved 12 times probably, keys were in the pocket. I then continue to just happily get ready for work and leave the house. About 
Two hours later, I get a text message, all in capitals. What the heck did you do to the house? It looks like we got broken into. <laughs> Let's just say I, didn't, uh, I did the dishes a lot after that. No, that's not true. But, you know, there's a, there's a similar story in the Bible in Mark chapter 6. And Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And after all this, he sends the disciples out on a boat And he says, I want you to cross the river. I'm going to go up on the mountain and pray, and I'll meet you later. So he sends the disciples out, and they go across the boat, and the wind comes up against them. And Jesus is, I love this bit, and I I wish I should have read this verse, but um, Jesus is sitting on the mountain watching the disciples cross. He sees the wind come up. And Jesus then goes down, and he walks on the water, and he walks out to the boat, and he's going to pass the boat by. He wasn't even going to stop. But the disciples see him and call out. And Jesus walks over and hops in the boat and the storm just stops. But like, the thing for me is like the disciples have just seen Jesus do miracle after miracle. They've seen him take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000 people. Probably more than 5,000 people because it was just 5,000 men. Like that's a loaf per thousand men. Like that's an an amazing miracle. You know how much men eat. Um, But like they've seen Jesus do all this stuff and yet they're still in the boat freaking out because of wind. You know, like, you know, we're all trying to beat the struggle. Like some of the young people would say, hashtag the struggle is real. Like it is real. We're all trying to beat the struggle. And I feel like we try to beat the struggle and overcome the struggle where from God's perspective, he's actually trying to send us through the struggle. He's trying, to, he's trying to get us to do so, something amazing. I love what it says in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. And I actually don't love it. I actually hate this verse. But consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. I want to read 1 Peter 5 as well. And it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due kind time. Cast all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. You know, those two verses, they're, they're, not, they're not an easy mouthful to take. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like, that is not an easy thing. Like, God is asking you to to be content and happy when he throws storms at you, when he throws trials at you, when he throws the struggle at you. And then the second verse, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Like, don't do it your way, but do it God's way. Because, like, I think we have this idea that when God asks us to do something, that the winds are going to be for us, that the winds are going to be on, going in our sails and going to carry us right across, that when God asks us to, to cross the river, it's going to be smooth sailing. But it's not always like that, that, that God puts us in these situations because he wants to bring something out of us. He wants us to, to trust him a little bit more. He wants us to live in response to him and not in response to our culture and our world and, and everything that's going on. He doesn't want us to live in response to our panic and our sinful nature. 
Like he's trying to, to bring some maturity out of us that you're not going to find anywhere else. Something amazing that only he can bring out of you. And it's only through going through those trials and struggles that, that those things are coming out. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't want us to overcome the struggle. He wants us to go through the struggle. It's not about overcoming. It's not about beating it. It's not about finding the easy way out. But it's about going through the struggle. You know, we've, talk, uh, we've talked from this platform before about um, refining steel, uh, refining silver, and that it's a process where you have to heat it up and you have to get it to a point where all the impurities come to the top. That's what the struggle is about. It's like you have to go through the heat to come out and be amazing at the end, to have a, have a finished and refined product. The struggle is, that's what the struggle is doing. It's heating us up. It's getting all those stuff out that God doesn't need us to have so that then there's an amazing finished product at the end. You know, I, I think it's so funny and I, I, I find myself doing this over and over again that, that God will take me through a struggle. He'll take me... Um, up a mountain, you know, you go through the valley and you come up the mountain. And that whole time that God is bringing you through that season, you go kicking and screaming. But then when you get to the top of the mountain, it's like God puts you down and you're like, oh, I'm awesome. I did this. How good am I? I came through this season. It's so good. Look where I'm at. I'm on this mountaintop. And, and you sort of get into this, this season of, I, I do it all the time and I, it's just something that I, I have to learn not to do. It's like I get to the mountaintop and I'm like, yes, I'm so good. Like, God, yeah, you were good, but I'm good. I'm here. I made it. Not really, yeah, no, like I was kicking and screaming the whole way. Like, but you get to this season and because everything's good and everything's smooth sailing and, and nothing bad is happening, you sort of stop. And you start and you forget about how important it was that you were reading your Bible and getting that food or how important it was that you were having a steady and constant prayer life and having God in, in, input something into you. Because when you were struggling, you needed that. You were like, oh, God, I desperately need you to do something in this situation. But when you're on the mountaintop, it's like, oh, I'm good. I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. Everything's going good. But, you know... I think it's so important that even when we're in, the, in a good season that we're still living in response to Jesus, that we're still turning to him, that we're still opening the word, that we're still getting in and, and feeding and, and growing. And, you know, I, I've, I was reading about marathon runners this week. And people that run marathons, normally they, they train like crazy. Like they go running every single day and they'll run kilometers and kilometers every single day. And then they'll do their marathon. And the recommendation for marathon runners is three to six weeks you stop. You take a break, you recover, you heal. But then you get straight back into the training. And you start running those kilometers and you start building up that strength again. Because if you stop completely, you're not going to run again. You're not going to be able to run another marathon. And I think the thing is, like, when we get to the mountaintop, it's only a season. Because, you know, I remember someone saying this, like, perfection is, is only fleeting. Like, you get to the top, you get to... But there's another mountain to climb. And before you climb that other mountain, you've got to go down into another valley. And God's going to do something in that valley. And, and God's going to bring something out of you for the next season for the, and, and something better. And, you know, it's so important that we keep pursuing God even in the good season. You know, there's a story in Genesis about a guy called Joseph. And Joseph is an absolute legend. Like, I cannot imagine living 
how Joseph lived. Like, he was his father's favorite son. His dad gives him a coat. His brothers get jealous, throw him in a hole, sell him into slavery. Joseph then lives in slavery for a few years until he gets accused of a crime, ends up in prison. And through this whole season, he sort of keeps this this beautiful, godly, like he just clings to God through the whole season. And eventually, Joseph interprets some dreams for some of his prison inmates And they leave him and they forget about him. And Joseph sits in prison and sits in prison until one of them hears a dream that Pharaoh has, the king of Egypt. And he reminds, he's reminded of Joseph and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And Pharaoh gets Joseph out of jail. And Pharaoh starts telling Joseph about these insane dreams that he's been having. His first dream is about um, seven fat healthy, amazing cows that are feeding on the side of a river. And there's, these seven cows are there, and then all of a sudden, out of the river comes seven skinny, diseased, horrible cows, and they then eat the fat cows. Like, I don't know what Pharaoh was, cannibal cows, that's kind of creepy, but, you know... So they eat these cows. And then his second dream was sort of the same thing. There's seven healthy stalks of grain and then grow up seven unhealthy, terrible stalks of grain and they sort of consume the the good grain. And Joseph interprets this dream. He says, Pharaoh, this is what God's trying to tell you. You're going to have seven years of plenty, seven amazing years of harvest, Seven years of amazing cattle, of amazing grain. And then at the end of that seven years, you're going to have seven years of famine. So what Joseph then does is he tells Pharaoh that I want you to take one-fifth of all the grain, of all the produce, and I want you to put it in the storehouse in those first seven years. And then there will be enough grain that it will be overflowing for the next seven years of famine. And this plan worked amazingly. Joseph became the the leader of Egypt. But throughout Joseph's life, we see him go through seasons. And I see that represented like in his in his interpretation of the dreams that God gives him. Like I feel like there's such a a flow through of all of Joseph's life of these good seasons. And I feel like Joseph used those good seasons to get through the bad seasons, to get through the valleys. Like he was constantly feeding on God, on, on, on the word, on, on having a solid prayer life, that even we see that reflected when he gets to that status, those seven years, and he does that work for Pharaoh. He's already got it in his heart as a, as a principle for life, that when you go through the good season, you store up for the bad season. And that's so reflected in the end of that story. And I just feel like it's so important for us that we we keep our, our warehouse full and overflowing in the good season so that when we get to the bad season, we've got a storehouse and a wealth that we can take with us. But I think the other part of that is that in the good season, we've got to keep it overflowing. Not just full, we've got to keep it overflowing because there are other people on the journey around us. There are other people who are going to need us in our good season to help them in their bad season that we can come back and we can go, hey, you're going to get through that. You're going to deposit, because God's depositing something in you, and you're going to then deposit it onto them. And I think when it comes to relationships, I think when it comes to um, working with and living with people, that this, 
living in response to Jesus becomes so fundamentally important to what we do as Christians. The, the, there's two commandments that Jesus gives to his disciples, two, ma- two big commandments. The first is love as I have loved you. That you would live your life out of response to how God loved you. That you would take that love that God deposited in you and then you would carry it out and, and let it be a blessing to the people around you. That when people rub up against you, you're not thinking, oh, that horrible person, I can't handle them. But you're thinking, no, God loved me first. God loved me and I'm going to love as he had, he's loved me. The second commandment that God gives is go forth and make disciples of all the nations. And it's not go forth and make disciples of Luke. It's go forth and make disciples of Jesus. That I'm not going out to make disciples and people that are connected to me, but I'm going out to make disciples of people that are connected to Jesus. That I'm going to take what Jesus deposited in me and I'm going to carry it out to them. You know, I love... Um, I've been incredibly blessed over the past few months to be part of the process of um, the vision that Pastor Marty brought last week, gather, grow, go. And it's, it's been an incredible bless, blessing for me to see that develop and, and how as a church we've come to that. And, but I was thinking about gather, grow, go this week and I, I was going to talk about it to our youth team, uh, to our youth kids. On, I did talk about it to our youth kids on Friday. And the one thing that just kept jumping out to me when I was reading about those words, gather, grow, go, I feel like there's two really fundamental elements to gather, grow, go. It's God and people. God and people. Like, you cannot do any of those elements do not work without God, but they're all about people. That, that we would gather in the house of God, that we would gather and worship God, but we'd gather with together. That we're gathering with other people, that we're gathering with... Um, we're gathering with people who are going to speak into us, who are going to grow us, who are going to challenge us. But then we've got grow. And I love, there's this verse in, in Luke, and it's Luke 2, verse 52, and I don't have it on the screens, but it says, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. That Jesus had to grow up in maturity. He had to grow up physically. He had to grow up mentally. He had to get smarter, but he had to learn how to, develop a relationship with people and he had to learn how to develop a relationship with God. Like it's something that our creator has set in line for us. That it's such a fundamental thing that we have to grow in our relationship with God but we also have to grow and learn how to deal with people. And then go. Go is all about going and serving God by building disciples, by serving his people, by serving the people that he places us in. And all these things require us to live in response to what God is doing in us, to live in response to Jesus, to live in response to what um, he's called us to do, to live in response for the plan and purpose of our life, to live in response to the love and, and plan that he has for our lives so that then we're going and blessing the people around us, that we're having an impact and being an example to the people around us. And I think the thing that, that shines through, I love the story of, of Jesus and the adulteress. The, the priests bring an adulteress before Jesus. And, he, and they go, she's an adulterer. What should we do with her? And Jesus does this really weird thing where he bends down and he starts writing things in the dirt. 
And the Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing, so I have no clue, but I, I believe it was something incredibly profound. And eventually they asked Jesus again, what should we do with this woman? And Jesus said, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And one by one, they drop the stone that they had to stone this woman and they walk away. And the woman's still crouching down and Jesus eventually says, why are you still here? They're all gone. And she, saw, she looks up at Jesus and she's, she's surprised and Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go live your life and be free. And I think there's such this beautiful moment where, where Jesus just loves on this woman. Jesus just is so gentle and so amazing with her. And, and I feel like that's how we're meant to respond. Like Jesus set the example in that moment. It's not about laws. It's not about the law is important, don't get me wrong. And it's something that we need to strive for and live to. But, but we also need to love people. That, that we've got to live out of that love that Jesus showed that woman. That, that, that's the same way that Jesus loves you. That I'm a sinner and, I, and I'm afflicted. And, but Jesus still loves me. And he doesn't condemn me and he accepts me. And that's, that's how we're meant to go on love. You know, I think living in response to Jesus is about perspective. It's always about perspective. It's like, when, it's like being in a maze. You know those hedge mazes? That you go in there and you will get completely lost. But if you look at it from the top, it's like easy. And you can like trace the line straight to the end. Like God sees it from the top. Like we're down here slugging it through the maze, but God sees it from the top. It's like Jesus was on the mountain and he could see the disciples in the lake. Like, he knows he's got a better perspective than us. He's got a better view. Like, and he's going he's gonna, to, he's given us the tools and he's right there. Like, I think so often when we're in the struggle, when we're in the, in the pits of life, we're looking this way and trying to work out how to do it. But what we really need to do is turn around and realize that Jesus was standing right behind us with the right way to go. And it's just that field of view, that perspective. If we're missing it, we can't get to the end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and it says, it says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You know, sin and, and our sinful nature and, and living in this world, it's sort of like having asthma. It's something that we're going to have our whole lives. That's the, that was the curse of sin. That's what, when Adam ate that fruit, that's what happened and came upon humanity. And it's something that we have to learn to live with. And it's something that we are going to be stuck living with. But you see, God's put the Holy Spirit in us. Like the Bible says that we are carriers of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like your ventilant puffer. The Holy Spirit is like your ventilant puffer. You see, when you're struggling and you're, you're freaking out and you're trying to work out what God is trying to do and why you're in this situation and you start to lose your mind and you start to, start to get rushed and uncomfortable and you're trying to just go as fast as you can trying to get out of the situation. But what we really need to do is stop and just grab the ventilant puffer. Stop and let the Holy Spirit deposit a fresh wind inside. Start to, to stop the panic, stop the rush, stop the run. Be in the moment and just let the Holy Spirit breathe something in you. 
let, let the Holy Spirit do something in you, change something in you, and then the stillness comes. You know that moment of clarity, that moment where God can just whisper into your ear something amazing, something that's going to get you through that season, something that's going to stop you messing up the house. It's all about perspective. It's about going, actually, if I do this, if I just let the Holy Spirit breathe something in me, do something fresh in me, God's going to, and he's going to change something inside of me. He's going to bring out the best of me. He's going to, like it said in that first verse that I read, read, God brings out the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Let's live in response to God's love. Let's live in response to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Let's live in response to the tools and the gifts that he's deposited in us so that we can come out, go through the struggle, not overcome it, go through it and come out the other side with God having developed something amazing in us. I'm going to pray and if the band wants to come back. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the amazing opportunity that you have given us, God, for the amazing blessing that you have poured out, God, for the amazing plan and purpose that you have for our life. And God, I pray this morning that as we're sitting here right now, that we would just, we'd just clear our minds and we'd grab hold of the Holy Spirit. We'd take that, that puff of Ventolin, that we'd let the Holy Spirit breathe something fresh in us this morning and that you'd bring something out of us amazing, God that we'd recognize that you have better perspective than we do, God. That we'd, we'd start to pursue that perspective. We'd start to pursue your way, your view of life, what you're trying to do, God, and that we would see it for what it truly is. That you're trying to, to, to refine us, to bring out the best out of us, to, to do something amazing in our lives, that we'd recognize that you have a bigger and better plan than that we have for our lives, God. And God, I just pray that we would live in pursuit of that plan, that we'd, be, we'd recognize your calling on our life and we'd readily go after it, immediately go after it, immediately pursue what you've placed on our lives, God. And we just thank you for this in your heavenly name. Amen. Amen.